in St. Joseph Health. I'm your host, Julie Alexandria, bringing you the latest in healthcare and trends and news each week. So today we're joined by two leading executives at Providence St. Joseph Health, Dr. Karen Boudreau, Senior Vice President, Enterprise Care Management and Coordination, and Dr. Dora Barilla, Group Vice President, Community Health Investment. And today we're going to be talking about creating healthier communities and what that means. So remember, if you have any questions for our wonderful experts, please feel free to submit them via our Twitter handle or our Facebook page while we're live here today. And we can be found on social media on Twitter at PSJH and on Facebook under Providence St. Joseph Health. And please use the hashtag Future of Health. That's hashtag Future of Health. And we'll be on the lookout for those throughout the show. All right, so let's get this thing started first by welcoming both of you. Thank you so much for joining me here today, Dr. Boudreaux and Dr. Barilla. Can you tell us a little bit about the roles that you play at Providence St. Joseph Health? Well, thank you, Julie, for having us. My name is Dora Barilla, and I am, um, as you mentioned, oversee community health investments. So we have, in terms of you know our footprint, we have um, a seven-state footprint. So really, one of my key roles is to look at improving community health where we have a presence in terms of Providence St. Joseph Health, and really looking at how do we partner with communities, how do we assess the needs of our communities, and then how do we work with meaningful strategies in collaboration with our communities to you know really improve overall health, not just health care, and then really beginning to align our work with Dr. Karen Boudreau. And thank you. So glad to be here. Um, I'm a family physician by training, and I work in the population health division at Providence St. Joseph Health. And my role is really to work with, um, with uh, leaders and nurses and social workers and caregivers across all of our seven states to help improve the way we um, uh, help our patients stay as healthy as they can. So we focus in on uh, particularly folks who have um, a high risk or are uh, heading for trouble in their health, and we're trying to figure out ways to work with them so that they can help avoid that trouble. And we talk about population health. What exactly is it? How do you define population health? So population health really is um, the health outcomes of a group of people. It's, it's actually quite quite simple from that perspective, except it's hard to do. Uh, and really the distribution of that health across a population. So you might look at a community, or you might look at the patients taken care of by a certain practice, or you might look at the whole country as the population. And then what are the health outcomes in that group of people, and how are they distributed? Um, does diabetes, for instance, run uh, as commonly in all of the population, or is it more common in one part of the population than another? And how are we doing um, helping people manage that diabetes? Is it the same across that population or not? Most of the time, it's not. Well, what is a statistic, for example? Give us an example. What was something that, within your research, you were surprised at or shocked at when it comes to population health? For me, the thing that, that is always a healthy reminder and a surprise is how much, um, how little of our health is determined by health care. So we are a healthcare delivery system. We take care of people when they're sick. We try to help them stay well. Um, we do that out in the practices. We do that in the hospitals. But even if we did everything right all the time for all the people and got every possible best outcome we could in health care, uh, that only accounts for about 20% of what makes up an individual person's health. Other things like their environment, um, like their, uh, their social connections, their genetics, 
um, the, the policies around them that, that impact how they live their lives, those things all actually also contribute to health. So it's more than just health care. Yeah. We still have to do health care really, really well, mm -hmm. but there's a lot of other stuff we need to do well, too. And from a clinical perspective, on a day-to-day -day basis at Providence St. Joseph Health, what does that look like in the community? Well, if you, you know, the clinical perspective in the community, so there's kind of two questions there. So I think, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis, we're always looking at how can we partner with our communities, you know, in terms of um, ensuring that not only people have the clinical care that they need in terms of whether it's an emergency or whether it's a chronic disease or, you know, whatever the, the, the current health condition is and that we're, you know, we're knowing what the issue is. Um, you know, we're caring for them in the appropriate setting. And then we're, you know, in a sense, easing their way in terms of on their journey to health. So we, you know, we have a, a very large footprint um, across the United States. But I think that those are some commonalities in terms of, you know, really treating people with compassion and getting to know them, developing that relationship and making sure that we're providing the right care. So you say clinical and community. So mm -hmm. there's going to be, as you know, as Karen mentioned, there's, there's lots of clinical issues that we're dealing with but then there's also a lot of social issues that are impacting our communities and making sure that we're using the right tool or the right intervention for the right issue how do you marry those together well we're working together very closely on that because you know we know they're so interconnected and so for so long you know in terms of what's a statistic that shocks well it doesn't shock me anymore but you know when you first start looking at the dollars there are uh, you know a very small percentage of individuals that you know really uh, account for a lot of the healthcare expenditure and so you know i've often said that that's because we've used clinical tool very expensive clinical tools often especially you know amongst the poor and the vulnerable with um, you know with the, those social issues are being treated with clinical tools and so you know how do we begin to marry those we've done that at a high level in terms of our strategy at at Providence St. Joseph Health. So mine and Karen, you know, our worlds um, are completely interconnected and that we're looking at not only the clinical issues and the care management issues, but what are those social conditions and, and, and pulling in our data, our workflows, and how we're really thinking about this in a holistic way. I think what I would add to that is, is that we're really embarking on this journey of raising our own awareness and our own uh, thinking about what are the what are the possibilities for how do we solve these complicated problems? Um, and that's been a journey in and of itself, going from a, a system that has been around for you know, almost 170 years, uh, providing social care in the communities, going back to, uh, to, to Mother Joseph arriving in, in uh, the Pacific Northwest in the 1860s, um, and starting schools and hospitals and orphanages and places for people with mental illness to receive comfort, um, that's the part of our legacy that actually is, is continuing to this very day. And we're coming back to some of those um, uh, community-oriented uh, approaches to solving those problems. And it's really exciting. Definitely exciting and definitely very topical. I mean, you can't turn on the TV these days without seeing the healthcare debate sort of on a, on a grand stage when it comes to politics. So has the Providence St. Joseph health population strategy shifted at all, given the new administration in Washington? Well, I think, you know, in terms of some of our advocacy strategies have changed, and, you know, to ensure that we're providing the right care and making sure that people have adequate coverage. 
but I don't think our care has changed. You know, we're committed, like Kieran said, we've been around for 170 years, and we're committed to improving the health of our communities and serving the poor and the vulnerable. And that won't change. That is consistent. Um, you know, as times change, we, you know, we take a look at, you know, how can we do that better? But in terms of how we're providing care, you know, we're just really committed, and we're not, you know, we're not shifting from that. So that's a core part of the work that we're doing. One of the things that we did uh, over the past several months was to um, uh, develop a, a something called the, the Faces of Medicaid, which was um, really intended to help demonstrate uh, across social media and, and to the public that what we think of as Medicaid um, is, is often just a small piece of what it actually represents. And this took stories from our own caregivers, people in our Providence St. Joseph Health family who have been who have relied on Medicaid to help their family members and their loved ones uh, to manage. And it's been really, um, I think, very eye-opening and heartwarming to see uh, that, that the stereotypes we have about care for the poor um, uh, are really insufficient for understanding what that really means. How do you direct a spotlight to encourage understanding? Because that's a very interesting point, because I feel like I don't know if it's possible to foster healthier communities in today's political and social climate when if you don't see it every day, if you're not aware of it, you don't know what's going on in other communities. So how do you sort of bring awareness to those communities and the people that need it most? Part, part of it is just getting out into the community and talking to people. Um, we can't, we shouldn't develop solutions without being in conversation with the people that we're trying to help. Um, because if we if we just come and say, oh, have we got the answer for you? All you need to do is this, this, and this, and this. A, it won't work, and B, we'll get laughed out of any room we're in. Uh, we have to do this together. And, and it is, um, it's one of the ways that I think we actually restore our own joy in the work that we do because it brings the connection back. It's not just about seeing another patient or um, you know, filling out another form for an insurance company, but it brings it back to why do we do this to begin with? Why are we here? And I think that you know, often the the you know the news and the political debate is you know what we're hearing, mm -hmm. but to to Karen's point, really getting in and, and seeing what's happening every day in our communities that people are being served, and that you know if you go into any of our facilities, that people are getting cared for, and that's happening on a daily basis. And so uh, you know, just reminding people that good stuff is happening. Um, even amongst all of the trials and tribulations and the conversations. Well, I want to hear about some of the good stuff. So what are some of the innovative population health efforts currently underway at Providence St. Joseph Health? Let's talk about that. Well, not to be a, a, a data nerd, but I will start with um, a lot of our data. So we're really integrating a lot of our data platforms in terms of taking the clinical information and connecting it with our social you know some of the social issues so that's a big innovation in terms of how we're taking that data how we're really looking at a lot of our, our relationships a lot of our um, partnerships with our community as well as um, you know what we've done at this at the system level in terms of integrating um, a lot of our metrics and accountability um, to include a lot of those social issues. So that's, you know, at the system level. And then we're doing a lot of stuff that's really helping, you know, at the system that's helping support some of the innovations in the community. 
I think that's absolutely right, Dora, and and I'm I'm really excited about our new strategic plan, which takes us through the next five years, which was really very intentional from this population health and community health perspective of saying we need to do work in a number of interrelated areas. So we need to focus on how are we caring for Medicaid populations. We need to focus on the mental health and wellness of our communities and how care is provided in our communities. We need to focus on those social aspects. And we need to do all of those things at the same time. And if we do it right and we weave all of those things together properly, we will get the kind of result we need. Some of the, just the, and I, I love what you said about the, the data, Dora, because for me it, it allows us to do two things. It allows us to look at that population level. What do we see of the trends and the, the themes that come out in a given community? And also, how do we use that information to better help individual patients? We have some really, uh, there are more examples than I could even count. The ones that come to mind immediately are um, up in Alaska, for instance, we partnered with a homeless shelter to develop, and not just in Alaska, actually, we, this has been done in a number of our ministries, partnering with homeless shelters to create respite beds. So sometimes people who are experiencing homelessness, when they come into the hospital, they're ready to go home, home, in quotes, medically, but they need additional care that would be virtually impossible to provide when they're homeless. They need some place where they can get 24-hour care, but they're not eligible to go to a nursing home. They don't have coverage for that. So we partnered with the homeless shelters so that they are able to stay in the shelter during the day, where normally people have to leave during the day, and get nursing care. And it has made a huge difference for the patients. It's made a huge difference for them being able to get out of the hospital, which is really important. Um, and it's just really exciting. Those have now developed into clinics and other services that are directly aimed at, at providing help to the homeless. Um, that's just one example, and, and I can think of at least a half a dozen places in our ministries where that has been replicated. Well, we're definitely going to hear more of that, and we will continue the conversation about fostering healthier communities with Dr. Boudreau and Dr. Barilla on Future of Health when we return after this.
Future of Health with Providence St. Joseph Health. I'm Julie Alexandria. Joining me today are Dr. Karen Boudreau, Senior Vice President, Enterprise Care Management and Coordination, and Dr. Dora Barilla, Group Vice President, Community Health Investment. And we are continuing the conversation about creating healthier communities. So again, I want to talk about some of the innovation that you guys have in the pipeline. Well, just to mention a few in addition to what Dr. Bordeaux mentioned was in Oregon, we have uh, what we call community resource desks. And so embedded in our clinics, we have, we're partnering with our community to make referrals for a lot of the social issues. So whether they need food or housing and really closing that gap, providing whole person care right there within the clinic. I know that might seem, well, that makes sense, but you know, that hasn't traditionally been done. So I think really making that a part of our, you know, a seamless integrated whole person care. And then in Northern California, just to mention a few, we, you know, this is really significant because um, I think their innovations were really impactful after the recent fires. So, you know, they've really been looking at a really uh, strong collaborative approach with, you know, how they're looking at population health, how they're looking at community health, and also how they're looking at mental health. And so they have a committee that has, you know, a lot of different community members sitting on the community on the committee with them, and they're doing crisis stabilization units and what they're calling accountable communities of health, where they have public health and homeless shelters, really collaboratively planning some of the strategies. So it's not one, it's not just the hospital or the health system there, but it's really that collaborative approach to how are we working with clinics, social services, um, and public health to really look at improving the health overall. And it was really interesting. And so, um, you know, after the fires, all of those relationships and those connections had been made and those simple innovations allowed for people to pick up the phone and, and serve not only 
only our community, but our caregivers were in desperate need so that they could come and and be a part of you know the solution. And so I think that's really key as we think about, we don't know what's gonna happen in our communities, but to have those innovations in play and have those connections and relationships and partners is really a core part of how we need to move forward in the future. Yeah, no, I, I love that. And I, I think one of the keys in each of those instances is listening to the community, listening to mm -hmm. the people who are impacted by so many challenges and working together with them to figure out what would be helpful. Not to come in and say, we know what the answer is, but what do you need? Mm -hmm. uh, and what's the best way to get that? When you look at these communities, what are the ailments? What are the maladies? What are sort of the biggest issues that you see, if you can name them? I can certainly name them because we do community health needs assessments. So, you know, a lot of the chronic, you know, when we talk about chronic diseases, what does that mean? Mm -hmm. So, you know, you have a lot of heart disease, a lot of diabetes, a lot of uh, pulmonary obstructive diseases, asthmas. And so those are your, you know, a lot of your chronic diseases that are impacting our community. But then we're also seeing a lot of mental health issues, a lot of substance abuse issues looking at housing insecurity and food insecurity are amongst um, pretty much amongst the top elements in in every single one of our communities so those are you know just a, a, a broad brushstroke mm -hmm. in terms of you know some of the health issues and then you know behind those a lot of the chronic diseases are the behaviors and the you know the community conditions that actually promote those behaviors so it's really the the complexity of you know I always say what are you dying from what are you being hospitalized from and what's causing that mm -hmm. so that we're connecting the dots and knowing that it really is a continuum of care and that in order to impact the health of our communities we've got to look at all of those aspects mm -hmm. and sometimes trying to fix the clinical condition means thinking not only about what are the right medicines or what is the right prevention uh, to you know, to lower the chances that someone will get diabetes or smoking-related lung disease, but then what are the upstream issues that will also help that? So, what is the education? What is the what is the community approach? What are the resources that people need either before they're sick or the additional supports they need when they're sick to be able to really tackle that? Because again, just the pills and the insulin shots are not going to be enough. Right, and you mentioned community support. What can communities within themselves do to help themselves to support all of the work that you're doing? Well, I think, you know, just talking about community conditions is really understanding what's, what, whatever sector you come from, whether you're an individual resident or, you know, an agency, what's your role mm -hmm. in providing that whole system of care? So is it social connections, you know, just checking in? Is it Meals on Wheels, you know, making sure that people have food after they've come home from the hospital? Do people have transportation? So, you know, when you come back from the hospital, if you don't have, you know, a ride back, um, do people, have, you know, can they access the, medic the medicines or the medications after they've been discharged from the hospital? And, and really helping to make sure that, you know, that, that whole continuum is being taken care of. I think it's also encouraging people to play a role. Find, find folks who are working on something that is interesting to you and get involved. I just had an image come into my mind of a story that I read in the Seattle paper about a year ago about a woman who um, lived in the central district of Seattle and she had a health problem and she was told she needed to um, lose weight and she just started walking on her own. Um, and then she started carrying a flag while she was walking and people started walking with her and she created walking groups. Um, she just was a person that was doing something for her own health and then created 
basically a movement to get people moving uh, in neighborhoods where exercise was not something that people spent a lot of time thinking about or doing. And it was just really exciting to me to say, you know, people can do a lot for themselves. And it was, it was really cool. That's fantastic. I want to meet her. <laughs> she sounds like a great lady. She was. That's pretty awesome. Well, you know, you talk about the communities, and I, I just want to bring some focus to some sort of brighter lights in the communities, some celebrities who have a platform to to speak on this subject. And Dame Dash and Tumex, they were talking about the importance of diabetes education in both the African-American and Latino communities. And, you know, diabetes, like you said, it's not always talked about that much. So we're going to hear from both of them, and here's what they had to say. Of all the things that I've done, I've really never had this kind of response. You know, it's not about, like, them being fans. It's about them really being thankful that we're making it where people understand that it's all right to be diabetic. It's giving diabetics hope. I'm back on my feet. I have, you know, I have a prosthetic, and I'm back to, you know, somewhat a normal life but at the same time now I have diabetes and high blood pressure to deal with so upon all that realization I began the education uh, to be more educated by force not by not by will because you know how we're trying to reach people now to to be educated by will I wasn't educated by will I was educated by force how can we work on not only the perception of diabetes and what that means but also the stigma and encourage the conversation about this topic well, I, I mean, we certainly thank you for that interview because raising the awareness and, and knowing that you are not alone if you're experiencing diabetes. This is really just exploding throughout the country. And I think having the conversations about what's happening and then what do you do that there are things that you can do, providing that social connectivity, that social support, looking at you know the food environment and getting moving. But I think um, having, having the resources available so that people know what's going on um, and also really looking at a lot of the cultural issues that are impacted with diabetes in terms of, you know, that's not something that, um, you, you know, you just, you really need to have some support there in terms of primary care involvement. And a lot of cultures are afraid to go to the, you know, to go to the health system. I know I've talked to a lot of people, if I'm not dying, I'm not going to the doctor. And so how are we encouraging, you know, that care and making sure that our, you know, as we're providing care, that we're being sensitive mm -hmm. to some of the issues and some of the fears and really understanding mm -hmm. what are some of the cultural perceptions of accessing care where do they access it so it's not only in the primary care office but you know looking at our local health clubs so i think overall you know just like you mentioned that it has to be an, an, an awareness mm -hmm. um, and then really understanding um, how can we support as a community and then, and then really looking at the health system and what's the health system's role in that. But it's not only the health system, it's everybody working together. So thank you for raising the awareness. And, and what I love about, about that and what you, what you added to, to his comments was um, that it, it does take a lot of different efforts. We, we have a tendency when we're taking care of people in the office to come kind of overwhelm them with lots of information. You need to start doing this. You need to have these tests. You need to check your feet every day. You need to do this. And like two sentences into that, it's not getting in. There's, there's just too much information. So we have to also really practice meeting people where they are, reconnecting with them, going over this again and again, and finding out what they feel competent to do. Like, I can try to do this little piece first. Great, let's start with that. Let's see what happens with that, and let's build on it. And then I think also making those connections back uh, to peers 
who else do you know that has diabetes and how are they doing? Do you know someone who's doing really well with it? What can you learn from them? What can they teach you? Could you do some of this together? The YMCAs, among others, are huge in diabetes education. They also have a pre-diabetes education program so that people can, um, who are at risk for developing diabetes, which is usually related to being overweight and having other factors, um, they can help people get on uh, a path to actually reversing that. And so it's really exciting. It's, 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 it's all of those layers all together. Well, social media and technology is obviously a huge resource, especially when we talk about Express Care app. So we're going to hear now from Demrick and Carity English, and they're going to talk about how convenient it is and how important it is to bring technology into healthcare. You're seeing physicians and you're seeing providers, healthcare providers, right over your phone. It's an amazing service. That's the reason why I stood behind it. The best part is especially living in California, um, I just get to call in. I don't have to drive. I don't have to wait in traffic. I don't have to be around other sick people because unfortunately that's a lot of germs are in waiting rooms and there's considerably less germs in my home than there are um, waiting in, a, in a, an emergency room. We just heard from Demrick and Carity English talking about Express Care app. So for those who don't know, what is the Express Care app? So the Express Care app is, uh, is, is puts on your, on your smartphone the ability to um, connect with our Express Care clinics that are located all throughout our seven states. And we offer a number of levels of Express Care. We have Express Care Virtual, so you can sign up for a, an electronic visit right on your phone, you know, talking to a clinician, uh, having that interaction, they can take care of certain problems right over the phone, um, get you, you know, prescriptions when it's appropriate, and, and take care of everything right on your phone. We also have express care clinics that are located either on their own uh, or in uh, Walgreens and other facilities where patients can go for, uh, for minor care, for if you've got a cough or a cold or you think you have a bladder infection or you need an immunization. Um, you need your tetanus shot updated. You can go right there and get the care uh, immediately at an express care clinic. And those are really important because sometimes when people don't have time to wait for a doctor's visit, they might not be able to get one for three or four days and they need care now. But it's not an emergency. They're not bleeding to death or they're not having you know something that requires going to the hospital. By going to express care, they can get that care right away. Um, and it's much more much easier and more convenient and much more appropriate for the conditions that they have. And just hearing about what Express Care provides, to me, it sounds expensive. A home care, a doctor coming into your home yes. or getting to talk to someone about, hey, I mean, you're basically cutting the line in the waiting room saying, hey, you know, I've, I've got this thing in, in my nose and my nasal congestion and what do I do? So how do you make that care affordable and accessible to people? Well, I think that's a huge, that's, it's a huge benefit of it, and it doesn't have to be expensive. One of the advantages of something like Express Care Virtual is that the clinicians that are seeing you over the phone are already at work. So they're, they're there to see patients that day, and they're able to see patients through the video, um, and you're not, you're not adding um, a level of expense to the providing of care. Even the Express Care at Home, which is available here in the LA area, um, uh, and in some of our other markets, um, we, we have found that it is actually more cost effective, not only for, uh, for our patients, but for us when we're responsible for that total cost of care. It's better for everyone if we're able to provide that care for you there in your home as opposed to 
you know, getting into the car, going and waiting in the emergency room, and incurring all of that time and expense that goes along with an emergency room visit. And I think it's really a part of you know our philosophy, the right care at the right place at the right mm -hmm. time. That's really what we're trying to do is really begin to think about that in, in, in very different ways. That not one size doesn't fit all for every condition and every person and every um, you know situation. Well, I need to do, download this app right now. Yeah, <laughs> and you can schedule your visit like in one click. It's very, it's actually really cool. I think it's fantastic. Well, we will be right back with much more, and we're going to continue the conversation about fostering healthier communities, and we're also going to hear some firsthand accounts of what exactly that means. We'll be back after this. <laughs> We're nothing more than friends You're not my lover, more like a brother I know you since we were like ten Yeah, don't mess it up, talking at ease Only gonna push me away, that's it When you say you love me, that make me crazy Here we go again Don't go look at me with that look in your eye You from Kat Zingano and Donovan Carter about alternative medicine like acupuncture, chiropractic, and massage treatments. Well, performance is obviously very important in our day-to-day, -day, not just actually in competition, but in the pre preparation for competition. And within that, like, we can't be in pain, we can't be hurt, but we also can't take pharmaceutical medication for a few reasons. One, I mean, USADA is, is constantly testing us, but on the, a more practical level, um, we can't have the side effects and the drowsiness and the whatever that comes with being in pain and having to take supplements for it. So um, everyone typically at this point is looking for a more natural way to go around doing what we're doing in order to optimize our health because supplementing with chemicals or different medicines and things like that are, are not conducive to us being our best. The gym is beautiful, so I mean, anything, you know, I feel like if it's convenient, people can see it. Mm -hmm. and, and see what's going on. I think that helps out a lot because a lot of people are on the go. Yeah. They're on the move and if they don't see it or they don't, it's not visible mm -hmm. and they won't, mm -hmm. they won't pay attention. So. Yeah, yeah. That, that, that was one of our goals when we, when we opened the Wellness Corner just to make it accessible for everybody, you know, because a lot of the time pro athletes and actors and, right. you know, they have access to, to all kinds of therapies and doctors and, and chiropractors and acupuncture, but, you know, we want to open it up to the public and make sure it's accessible for people coming to the gym. And we're back with Dr. Boudreau and Dr. Barilla. Now, what role can alternative medicines play in the overall treatment of pain? 
You know, I think alternative treatments are, are, I don't even like to think of them as alternative anymore. They really are part of the spectrum of what we should be doing to treat uh, particularly pain um, and, and sort of injuries and physical conditions. Um, first of all, I think when, when people are able to seek care that builds their own confidence in how they're taking care of their problem, that is a huge part of the, of the journey. So, um, you know, whether a massage therapy can help release a painful muscle or joint or a chiropractic can help somebody's back to feel better, uh, it is really important that that be available to them to, to expand their treatment options. Um, I know in, in my own family that's uh, frequently um, an avenue that we go to to, um, to relieve, you know, injuries and other problems. And I think if, as you think about community and you know just even access, that you we look at the opioid epidemic and the crisis, and so having these alternatives to pain are going to be really critical. Um, and so again, it really is shouldn't be considered an alternative because you know there's there's so much to be said for just simple massage therapy or or even just having a conversation with someone you know to release your stress level so that we can really begin to look at not only all the clinical and that's important and you need that at the right time but there, there's a lot of things that we can that we can do to alleviate pain or to alleviate stress that don't always require clinical you know, clinical tools. And I think understanding and having that full continuum is really has to be a part of how we move forward into the future. Yeah, it seems like something you would definitely want to champion because you basically take out prescription medication. You take that out of the equation. Yeah, and I mean, it's something that that you can really do anywhere in terms of, you know, some, you know, massage envy or other, can I say that? Um, (laughs) You know, they're popping up everywhere. So, you know, as you're traveling and there's, there's always going to be the, those resources available. I think the other thing to add to that is in addition to providing symptom relief, sometimes when you have an injury, it's, it's, it's partly a matter of time until that injury heals. And these treatments can be incredibly helpful in, in helping people to sort of manage through that time until it's going to get better. But there's other times where there's, you know, there's a lot of very deep research on the impact yeah. of these treatments, in particular acupuncture and smoking cessation and, and other, um, other avenues where this can really make a huge difference in somebody's ability to succeed. So that's really important. Well, you talk about smoking cessation. I mean, that is a huge topic because, sure, we've got the smoking epidemic. That's a problem. But now vaping. We have a lot of people who have gone from cigarettes to vaping, and there sort of seems to be this idea that vaping isn't as bad as cigarettes. Yeah. But apparently that's not true. It's absolutely not true. And, and, you know, getting into all of what was researched and what was not researched before all of, all of those products came on the market is a whole separate conversation in itself. But there's increasing information coming to light that the chemicals in vaping are at least as dangerous, um, and it very, very scary uh, how quickly kids can get hooked into this by all of the same old techniques that the cigarette industry used 50 years ago uh, to get kids involved. Um, they're using now with vaping, and it's very scary. And the kids just they they they're very susceptible to it. So it's really important for us to continue to help kids understand how um, how dangerous this really is. Is there a risk when it comes to secondhand smoke from, or secondhand vape, I guess you would say? That's a really good question that I, I'm not an expert on, so I don't know the answer to that, but it would not surprise me in any way. Because you walk into a bar or restaurant oh. and people are vaping anywhere. 
I mean, there's really no rules when it comes to that. I mean, I go all over the country and I see it and no state has put into policy any sort of anti-vaping laws. And I wonder about it because I see people vaping and I'm sitting here, you know, having a salad and the guy next to me is vaping. And here I am breathing the stuff in and I'm thinking this can't be good for you. Yeah. And we'll see that policy come. I'm quite confident. Um, the, The current policy environment is a little challenging to get policy pushed through, but I think there will be uh, efforts to really move that along because it is it is uh, it's incredibly dangerous. We clearly know this you know this the secondhand smoke and the dangers of that. So I don't I think this will probably follow in the footsteps. But I think an, an important thing to remember with smoking and vaping is you know, these are often the precursors as we talk about those chronic diseases. These are the behaviors that are really leading to that to, to our chronic diseases and what are impacting you know the majority of our. Um, nation's health. So just to remember that this this is the beginning of, of that downfall. And more one more question on the topic of vaping for both of you. What can we do for the younger generation? Because it seems that a lot of these ads and a lot of this is targeted towards younger people when it comes to vaping as an alternative to smoking. Education and awareness. I mean, just having making the connection. That's why I made the connection with the chronic diseases. This is, you know, remember I remember, you know, when I was young, they used to have the commercials where they, you know, smoke the cigarette through the tracheotomy. Mm-hmm. And I mean, we don't know what the future holds for a lot of the vaping, but we know it's not going to be good. And so, to really just raise the awareness, this is no different. And I think it's also engaging kids in healthy habits. Um, helping them to learn what are the alternatives if you're stressed, you know, teaching kids meditation, teaching kids yoga, teaching kids walking, um, all of those things about really taking care of themselves and being aware of what's going into their bodies uh, is really, really important. And it's only one piece because they're growing, uh, their, you know, their brains are developing. And, you know, the scary thing is that there is a lot of susceptibility to all of that Uh, that imagery in childhood and so we have to work really hard to provide alternative imagery for them to to latch on to. Well one of the biggest decisions one of the most important decisions that a patient can make is choosing a healthcare provider is choosing a doctor and Jasmine Dustin recently partnered with PSJH to talk about selecting a primary care physician. Take a listen. So here at the Playa Vista it's filled with lots of millennials which we know do not have usually a primary physician why would we suggest that it's important for them to have one? So Dr. Bergero, Dr. Barilla, what do you look for as a patient? What, what's something to look for when you're choosing a doctor? Because a lot of times, you know, you sign up for health care, you get your health insurance policy, and they send you a list. Mm-hmm. How do you just choose a name on a list or throw a dart and, and pick someone based on what? So what is a key or what, what is something that a patient can do when it comes to choosing a physician? Well, I think, you know, one of the things is just referrals and, and talking to your insurance company, but then also talking to your family and friends in terms of getting a right fit because a physician or, you know, if a, a clinic that, that needs to be right for you, what's important to you in terms of, you know, providing health care and making sure that, that that is a good match so that, you know, that when you're going in, if alternative medicine is important to you, that there's a value on that in the, in the clinic. And, and, you know, to make sure that you can have an open, honest relationship with that primary care physician or with that clinic, because, you know, that's going to be really key that you can have the the conversations that need to that need to happen in order for you to improve your overall health. Increasingly, many, many primary care 
providers, physicians, nurse practitioners, physician assistants really see themselves as partnering with patients. We use the word partnering a lot, but really working together to make decisions about what's best steps for a person to take in their health. So making sure that you can find uh, somebody that will listen to your questions, will have that conversation back and forth with you, and will help you help guide you uh, into uh, whatever choices you need to make. I think the other is what services do they offer? Um, I have a, two daughters in their 20s, and, and one of them lives in San Francisco, and she had to find a new doctor. and. She looked on Yelp first to see what people were saying, um, which actually a lot of people do. Um, a lot of clinicians get worried about things like Yelp because you only you may only see uh, negative reviews when when people don't take time to put positive reviews, and right. that can be scary as a as a provider if you think you're doing a good job, and and it doesn't get reflected that way. But it can be very helpful to see how people experience them, and then do they offer? phone calls? Do they offer virtual visits? Do they offer a way to, to work with your life to get the care that you need? Um, and that's really important. We're talking about cultivating healthier communities with Dr. Barilla and Dr. Boudreau, and we will be back after this. Welcome back to Future of Health. We're talking about creating healthier communities today with Dr. Boudreaux and Dr. Barella. So we're going to open it up to social media. We're going to take some questions from the audience. So let's start it off with Kim on Twitter asks, why are healthcare costs so high? Kim, I have the same question. It is such a hot topic debate. Why are they so high? Why is healthcare so expensive? I mean, there's a long history of that and in terms of looking at, you know, how we're providing care. You know, often we're looking at um, providing the, the highest cost care, you know, going back to the right place at the right time. Um, and I think it's a lot of, you know, just expectations of, you know, uh, you know, defensive medicine, you know, really beginning to look at what, what is the right care. Um, you know, we have a lot, we have great care in the United States. And, um, you know, and everybody wants a piece of that. So I think, you know, we really need to look at um, what is the right care um, at the right place at the right time. And I'll keep saying that. Yeah, no, I think that's really, really important. And, you know, um, healthcare is expensive for lots and lots of reasons. We, we have great treatments available. We have lots of, of uh, prescription medicines that are really helpful in taking care of people's chronic conditions. Um, but those cost money to produce and to develop. And we have policies in this country that allow those to be um, produced and, and put on the market at relatively high prices. And prescription drugs are a huge part of the rising cost of health care. It it's both a good and bad thing because, again, as, as we develop new drugs that help us take care of diseases in a better way, that's really, really important. But we need to have them in a way that people can afford them. So there are a lot of policy issues that um, uh, we still need to address. Uh, we, we, we 
we take care of those things differently than they do in other countries, where they where they regulate them more and don't allow those high prices to exist. Sure, and it's more of a social program. I mean, the big question is, is affordable health care possible in America? Absolutely. Yes. You know, I mean, absolutely. We can do this. Um, we can, you know, use innovation. We can really look at the balance, what we're doing in balancing the, the right social resources with the right clinical care. We can get there, and we will. And with focusing on prevention and taking good care of ourselves before we get sick. I mean, it's all tied in together. Um, the more we're able to uh, lessen the impact of chronic disease, um, the better we'll be able to do. And using health care or care um, in the, for the right reasons. Mm -hmm. And so often, you know, to your point about some of the social issues, we need to use, make sure that we're not um, using our emergency department for a, a homeless person to have a, a bed and a meal. I mean, that, 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 that doesn't make sense. So we really need to look at some rational conversations and policies about um, what's the role of healthcare in overall health. Well, speaking of the role of healthcare, Jordan on Twitter has a question that I think confounds a lot of people, and he wants to know the difference between Medicaid, Medicare, and Obamacare. What is the difference? Break it down. Oh, that's a good question, and it's a confusing one. Both Medicare and Medicaid are programs that were started by the government back in the 1960s um, during what was called um, the War on Poverty, uh, because back then, actually like now, um, the cost of getting health care put a lot of people, ag aggravated poverty for a lot of people. So Medicare is an insurance program for mostly for the elderly. Uh, it is for people 65 and older, as well as people who have chronic disabilities. So maybe people who have kidney failure or uh, who have any number of other chronic disabilities. Medicaid is a program that is run together between the federal government and the states to take care of people who, um, who live in poverty. And it is mostly thought of as a program for women and children, but in fact, over two-thirds of what we spend in Medicaid actually covers taking care of people in nursing homes. So it's a pro program that covers uh, many people who um, aren't able to afford health insurance because of the level of poverty. Um, and then Obamacare is really um, the Affordable Care Act, which was a law that was put into effect in the late 2000s that really changed the way we um, offer health insurance in this country. And it allowed two really important things. One is the expansion of Medicaid so that um, people who had income levels a little bit above what um, would have made them eligible for Medicaid before can now get Medicaid. And that opened up insurance uh, in especially to young men who typically were not eligible for Medicaid before. And then it opened up um, new rules about individual insurance so that people could buy individual insurance um, one by one on something called the exchanges at an affordable rate. And it has really changed the way people have coverage. Once they have coverage, then that gives them access to being able to get to the doctor. It's really changed everything. Well, let's have an update to that, because you're right, in the late 2000s, that's where we were at with Obamacare, but then the current administration had made it a huge priority to undo Obamacare. So I think a lot of com people are confused as far as where is Obamacare now, and is it the Affordable Care Act? Is it the same thing? And is it the same thing today as it was a few years ago? So what has prevailed, what has held over from Obamacare, and what no longer exists? So... 
off the top of my head, I don't have all the specific changes, but the bulk of the Affordable Care Act is still actually very much in play. People can still go to the exchanges in their states and put in their information and have offered to them a number of options for their insurance. And in most places where Medicaid expansion happened, that is still an option. So if your income is at a certain level, it will say you're eligible for Medicaid expansion and you can sign up for a Medicaid plan. So the ability to get those plans as an individual is still there. And that is the most important part. Some of the, some of the protections within the law have changed, but the basic overall uh, structure of the law is still in place and people can still get their insurance. That's the most important thing for people to remember. That is definitely the most important thing. And I think a lot of people have a lot of different opinions on this. And Laura on Facebook said, she's kind of sounding off on the topic. She said, why are other countries so much better at health care and insurance coverage? Well, if you look at, you know, the United States versus other countries, going back to the topic of affordability, we're an outlier in terms of how much we spend per capita on, on health care. But we're also an outlier on how much we're spending on social services that we're actually below other countries. So I think it's a decision on how we want to provide health, you know, health care in our country. Um, do we want to, you know, I think what the Affordable Care Act did do is, is say that, you know what, we, we are in agreement that we need to provide health care to everybody. Um, and then, but we, we didn't agree how we were going to pay for that. And that's where a lot of the debate mm -hmm. and, the, and, you know, some of the policy tension comes in. But I think, you know, we need to persevere through that because we, we made that decision and, uh, you know, as, as a nation. And so many other nations, um, you know, have a, have a different value set and are making that and, and moving that forward and you know, a lot of history. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's really about where do we go in the future? And what are, the, what are the decisions that we want to make? Do we want to provide that coverage? And do we want to persevere? And do we think that people should have access? Um, or do we want to repeal and, and take away and strip people from, uh, millions of people from coverage? And we forget that when we take that away, it actually impacts our societies in so many other ways. So, uh, you know, we pay for it one way or another. It's just how we decide to pay for it. The other thing that's, I think, really important to understand is even though the systems around the world are all very different, um, most countries still struggle with many of the same issues. They struggle with the impact of poverty. They struggle with, with the rising cost of housing, with the rising cost of health care. Um, and they approach it in different ways that work within their country. Um, but what we are not alone in is that everybody is struggling with this across the world. Everyone is struggling, and everyone can also do their part as well, I would say. And on Facebook, Kelsey asks, how can people focus on their own health in easy ways? I mean, is it as easy as nutrition or weight management and sort of cutting out drinking? Well, those are a great start. I mean, there's just some real strong premises, you know, but what we also know in addition to that, um, you know, making sure that you have the social connectivity necessary, that you're also taking time for, you know, just, um, you know, being still and being present and being mindful and taking some time off and to make sure that you're not over, you're not being overly stressed. Um, and, and then also, you know, really beginning to look at, you know, the food, the nutrition and making sure that we're getting enough sleep. Um, most people aren't getting enough sleep and that's really a key part of, of overall health. If you could tell me how to get more sleep, I would really appreciate it because that is a huge one. You're absolutely right. You cannot live a productive life on uh, not enough sleep. No, you can't. You no. really can't. No. 
that's when you heal. And, and you know, also I think taking care of each other. You know, we, we t- when we look at mental health and substance use issues in our country, I mean, they're just skyrocketing. And that, you know, people really are experiencing not only a lot of physical pain, but a lot of emotional. And so are, are we taking time and, and, and stopping when we see someone that maybe might not be having a good day? Um, you know, not only are we taking care of ourselves, but are we taking care of our neighbors? Well, it seems like such a behemoth task mm-hmm. to tackle the healthcare system, to tackle health and socially, but it seems like you too and Providence St. Joseph Health is doing an incredible job. So thank you for upholding those tenants and doing the great work that you do. Dr. Boudreau, Dr. Brulla, thank you so much for being here today. We appreciate your time and thank you everyone for listening and sending in your questions. Don't stop. We love hearing from you guys. Make sure to follow Providence St. Joseph Health on social media, PSJH on Twitter and Instagram and Providence St. Joseph Health on Facebook. If you happen to miss the show, don't worry. You can always replay it and share with your friends. I'm Julie Alexandria. This has been Future of Health with Providence St. Joseph Health. Thanks so much for listening.